It's Saturday, September the 10th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. Uh, as we're doing this early on a Saturday morning in California, this is something of a slimmed down version of Goodfellows. We're going to run for only about 30 minutes, and we're going to be shy one Goodfellow. Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster will not be joining us today, but we do have with us the economist John Cochran, Hoover Senior Fellow, Goodfellows Regular, and what makes this a very special broadcast, joining us live from Kiev, Ukraine, truly the international man of history, Goodfellows regular Hoover Senior Fellow Historian Neil Ferguson. Hello, Neil. Good to be with you. So, Neil, you've been in Kiev for about 36 hours now. You've been tracking this war for six and a half months. Is your thinking changing at all now that you've been on the ground and had a chance to look around? Yes, uh, and it was changing even before I got here. I've arrived at a rather extraordinary moment in this war. Uh, as we speak, uh, it is becoming clear uh, that Ukrainian forces have achieved a major success with their counteroffensive in the vicinity of, of Kharkiv. Uh, the city of uh, Izium has fallen. The Russians have fled, it appears, in some disarray. And, uh, and so we're beginning to see the first signs uh, that Ukraine's counteroffensive can meaningfully push the Russians back. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating, though, is how understated the Ukrainians are at this moment when you might expect uh, there to be jubilation. Quite the reverse. Uh, the messaging here is somber. Uh, President Zelensky uh, told us yesterday that there will be 90 days of a winter of discontent to get through. He used that Shakespearean phrase. Uh, the messaging from all his uh, ministers and other government officials is strikingly sober. Uh, they have understood the, the dangers uh, of premature triumphalism. And that impresses me almost as much as the news of success from the battlefield. I'm really, I'm really struck by the sense, the understanding here of how much trouble lies in the near future. And as John, I'm sure will, will agree, the financial and, and monetary position, the economic position generally of Ukraine is, is a parlous one mm -hmm. as, uh, as summer gives way to fall, it's pouring with rain outside, I should say. And the Ukrainians recognize that they're, they're, they're not deluding themselves. But and this is the, the, the big takeaway for me. I've come to realize that if they can get through these uh, 90 days, if they can get through the winter of discontent, from that point on time will be on their side and not on Russia's side. Uh, so I, I find myself in a very different frame of mind about the war uh, than I was certainly at its outset and even at the point when the Russians uh, launched their uh, or relaunched their their uh, military campaign uh, directing uh, their efforts at the Donbass and, and Kherson. Uh, this is definitely not uh, uh, the beginning of, of the end. It would be very foolish to say that, but, uh, but you can sense maybe... Uh, at uh, the end of the beginning and maybe something more than that. And Neil, how, how does the Ukrainian government, how does the Ukrainian media define victory in this war? You, um, as someone from the UK, if you'd been in Britain in the 1940s, the object was very simple, unconditional surrender by Germany. But what is the Ukrainian uh, definition of victory? 
Well, what uh, the polls tell you, and there are opinion polls uh, here, is that the Ukrainian public, which overwhelmingly uh, backs President Zelensky, regards uh, victory as not merely a return to the status quo anti-February the 24th of this year. Uh, they want to go back uh, to where we were prior to the 2014 annexation of Crimea and partial invasion of the Donbass. In other words, back to the original uh, frontiers of Ukraine at the point of independence in 1991. Uh, the, the talk here is that next year, uh, we'll hold our, our meeting, not in Kyiv, but in Yalta, in, in Crimea. Well, so there's no question that uh, the, the Ukrainian public has become uh, more ambitious in its, uh, in its expectations. But as I said, uh, the government itself is, uh, is not uh, talking such a, a big game, though if pressed, of course, they, uh, they will tend to, to say that. Uh, because you certainly don't want to concede mm -hmm. uh, the notion that, that the annexation of Crimea is legitimate. This, of course, makes it clear that any kind of peace agreement is very far off indeed, because right. what the Ukrainians are willing to settle for is something that President Putin would certainly never settle for. So after more than six months of war, it's harder than ever to see how there could be any kind of compromise between the two uh, combatants, uh, but but that is the the mood, and it should be added, as I've been doing some reading on on the Russian mood, uh, that that in Russia, as far as one can gather, of course, polling there is not in the least bit reliable. But those who pay attention through focus groups and by other methods to Russian opinion, they detect uh, a certain uh, enduring confidence that the so-called special military operation can be ended successfully. So in terms of outcomes, the two sides are very far apart indeed. Mm -hmm. John? Yeah, I, I just want a wonderful chance to ask you a whole bunch of questions. And, and maybe you can pick and choose which of those you think uh, have good, good or novel answers. First, of course, it, it seems natural that the Ukrainians are not, are not celebrating victory because they need Europe and our support. Europe's support is, is um, uh, you know, both are, are, are there in limited quantity. They need our support in terms of weapons, in terms of money, uh, and in terms of political support. So that they would say, hey, there's a long way to go and we still need your help seems completely natural. And I hope they will be um, gently reminding us that in fact, uh, we signed, we and Europe uh, agreed to guarantee Ukraine's territorial integrity, including Crimea, in return for it giving up nuclear weapons. And if we stand for anything, uh, we ought to stand for that word and not some sort of accommodation. But <clears throat> what will Russia do? I, I want you to put on your Henry Kissinger hat. Uh, you, the Ukrainians are, are advancing and, and uh, I'm cheering, you're cheering. <clears throat> but one always must think of what the opponent uh, will do and what the opponent does if it starts to look like it's losing. Uh, I envisioned a Gulf War I scenario here. Um, uh, Ukraine winds up right at the Russian border and says stop, and that ends things. But it's not obvious that Russia can say stop and that ends things, even if it gets there, that that's not just waiting for the next time around. Uh, it's not clear that Russia can politically, Putin can politically absorb a defeat of that thing. So you've always been very good at 
um, worrying about the next step and, and Russia simply calmly losing, giving up and going back and never mind uh, does not seem like an outcome. Um, the longer term, you know, what have Russia will now be separated from the European Union. Uh, what does that mean for Russia, for, for Europe uh, going on? So, so give us your Kissinger on, on the long, long view of this thing and well, what you're learning from Ukrainians. John Henry Kissinger is not popular in, in Ukraine right now because a few months ago he had the temerity to suggest that at some point there would have to be some uh, kind of, of settlement and uh, that there might be some compromise. He wasn't specific about that, but I think the Ukrainians took him to mean that some territory might not be restored. And this uh, earned him uh, a pretty uh, blunt rebuff from President Zelensky. But it's a legitimate uh, question that we have to ask, uh, what happens next? There's a scenario which is not my base case, but it's a scenario worth thinking about that the Russian army, which has suffered tremendously high casualties over the last six months, uh, begins to unravel. Let me walk you through how that looks. Uh, if you take the US or UK estimates for Russian killed in action, uh, the, the percentage of the invasion force uh, that they've lost is very high indeed, somewhere between 9 and, and 12%. That's uh, far higher than even US losses in the Korean War. Uh, so this has been a, a pretty disastrous military experience for the Russian army. Uh, it's an army which I've called a colonial army because so many of the troops are uh, not from European Russia at all, but from really quite far east. Uh, we went to the scene of the atrocities in, in Bucha, where the suburb of Kiev, where many civilians were massacred. Uh, the troops that carried out uh, the massacre uh, have as their home base a location uh, to the east of North Korea. This colonial army is a long way from home in many cases, and they've suffered uh, uh, really brutal casualties by the standards of any modern war. So there's a scenario in which uh, if Ukraine is able to hit them hard enough, as it appears to be doing right now, that army begins uh, to collapse. Morale is crucial in warfare. And uh, when armies uh, begin to lose uh, their morale, they can fall apart very fast. I did work on this many years ago on uh, the collapse of the German army in the summer of 1918. So watch closely. Uh, it just might be that the, the Russian army is at a tipping point. I, I'm going to say that's not the base case because the Russians still have some formidable firepower. And the Ukrainians, it should be said, are taking very heavy casualties. They don't have much in the way of air cover, and they're really facing some very heavy bombardments. But this is the, the scenario which then leads to the question, what does Putin do if his army begins to unravel? And clearly he has escalation options, of which the scariest uh, is that he uses a tactical nuclear weapon. Uh, he's already threatened to do that, so it wouldn't be uh, surprising if he used that threat again. The Ukrainians are worried about this. Only the other day, a government spokesman said that we should take seriously the risk uh, of limited nuclear war. And uh, the goings-on at the, uh, the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power station is another kind of nuclear threat that the Russians have been, uh, have been using. And this is what uh, President Zelensky calls uh, uh, a radioactive terrorism. 
So the threat of some kind of Chernobyl-like scenario is part of the story here. In he, other words, he may over. want to he may want to tell the West this has to stop. And how does he do that? And yeah, I was thinking the nuclear plant or a tactical nuclear weapon seems like thing. I also wanted to interject your previous point, which I think is excellent. The Ukrainian strategy of going back to the supply lines, cutting off Russians, encircling them, uh, and then forcing them to give up rather than frontal assault is designed exactly to lead to that sort of breakdown of morale. But, but please go on. Well, John, I think that the tricky thing is to work out what other options there might be. Ukraine's military forces rely very heavily uh, on satellite technology because it's through that that their high-end weapon systems like HIMARS, which we have provided them with, those work. And they work with incredible precision. Uh, I've heard speculation from uh, military experts I respect uh, that the Russians could contemplate attacks on satellites. Uh, and that's something that they have a capability uh, to do. So there are, are things that, that Putin can do that seem to me more likely than him folding. Whether, of course, uh, he would get his uh, generals to carry out uh, an order to use a nuclear weapon is another question. And that's pretty hard to know the answer to, given how opaque Russia's power structures have become. And I'm struck by the fact that the military uh, experts uh, who are here with me in Kyiv don't seem as worried about that nuclear uh, scenario as I certainly was uh, earlier in the conflict. But yeah, it would be a mistake to assume that these uh, victories that we're hearing about right now uh, from the battlefield mean that this is going to be over soon because Putin clearly has options to escalate. And he also knows, and this is important, John, he knows that we intimidated when he rattles that nuclear saber because it was right. one of the things that uh, deterred us from supplying the Ukrainians with, with planes uh, earlier in the war. Neil, I'd like to uh, shift back to Zelensky for a moment. Uh, here in the West, he is romanticized, he is lionized, he is lauded for his conduct during this war. But you've had a chance to watch up close now to see how he presents himself to the Ukrainian people. Is he omnipresent? Is he on the media 24-7? And on a related note, Neil, why aren't you wearing camouflage? Well, there's a, a kind of interesting style tip for visitors uh, to Ukraine. Don't Don't dress in the green uh, t-shirt uh, only the president and his very senior ministers like the prime minister get to do that right. so the higher up you are in ukraine the more you you dress uh uh like a lowly soldier it's quite <laughs> interesting how that works uh you might remember the french president emmanuel macron made a terrible mistake uh, in his election campaign when he dressed up in the zelensky outfit in the yes. uh, Elysee palace they still make jokes about that here so um you won't see me in a green t-shirt for a good long while i think that what's fascinating about uh this war is is that volodymyr zelensky um whom i met uh, some years uh, ago before this war broke out has has become a, the the modern hero uh, not only in the eyes of his people but around the world. And I think it's it's true to say that this is one of the most unlikely metamorphoses in modern political history, because he was a man who became president in an almost postmodern way, having been a comedian, uh, a very versatile comedian, an entertainer, uh, who in a sitcom played the part of an ordinary guy who becomes president. And then he became president. Now, you wouldn't have predicted that someone who came to power by that route uh, would turn out to be a Churchillian figure, uh, capable of, of rallying uh, his people at a time of such dire military uh, uh, 
crisis that the United States government was offering to fly him out uh, to avoid his uh, being captured or killed by Russian special forces. And Zelensky's retort, I don't need a plane ticket, I need ammunition, uh, is painted on the wall of the venue uh, where uh, where I've been uh, participating in a conference. He himself uh, has become a, a strangely magnetic figure. He's relatively uh, diminutive, but but muscular. Uh, and uh, the unshaven chin contributes to a, a personality transformation. Gone is the cheerful, joking, uh, and youthful uh, president I first met. Uh, now one is uh, confronted by a kind of uh, warrior who wouldn't look out of place in one of those uh, Lord of the Rings uh, shows that they uh, they screen these days on Prime or is it Netflix? I'm not a great television guy, as you know. What I'm 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 struck by is that not only is is his image part of the the morale of of the Ukrainian people, and it's right. a kind of antithesis to Putin, very consciously antithetical. Uh, my good friend, the journalist Anne Appleburn, made the point that that Zelensky has set about being the anti-Putin. If Putin's table for meetings is ludicrously long, uh, Zelensky will sit you down at the smallest cafeteria type table. If Putin's dressed up in a uh, probably Italian suit, then Zelensky's, Zelensky's outfit will be, as we've said, uh, extraordinarily sure. dressed down. But there's another point that is not so widely appreciated. And that is that in, in addition to his, his personality, uh, 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 his his image, he also wields considerable power here. Uh, and it's not too much to say that Zelensky has become a far more powerful figure institutionally than, than he was prior to the war. No one talks about the oligarchs who used to be the dominant figures in Ukrainian political and economic life. And that's because, as, as my friend Anders Olsen was explaining, they've become far less powerful as a result of the war. And one has a sense looking at the other members of Zelensky's government that they don't say anything that he hasn't uh, effectively scripted. His prime minister essentially repeated what Zelensky said yesterday when he spoke today. So it's, it's more than just image. I think Zelensky is in fact running this show. Uh, and right now he's running it very well indeed. You can't deny that. John? Do you get a sense, um, so where one big question is where Ukraine goes after this, what the feelings of people on the street are. Uh, so a, a wonderful leader is great, but Ukraine needed to develop a civil society, a functional government, uh, less corrupt. You know, little stories I read, the, the heroism of the railroad workers, uh, ordinary people pitching in, that this is the experience that forms a nation and, and I hope forms its political structures as well. Uh, do you get that sense that that Ukraine will come out of this a uh, not just a, a powerful a powerful uh, big man on top is is useful in a war but not exactly where we want Ukraine to go in the peace uh, but but where so the feelings of people on the street your sense of of the evolution of Ukrainian politics what the country will emerge like this um, afterwards well Ukraine has held up uh, against the Russian invasion and not just because uh, of a personality cult. Uh, it's held up uh, because the state and the military turned out to work far better than anybody predicted, including uh, US intelligence. And, and perhaps more importantly, Ukrainian civil society has proved to be extraordinarily resilient. Uh, 
this is, I think, it's not too much to say, a birth of a nation moment. It, it's reminiscent to me of the fights for liberation that one saw in the 19th century. One thinks of, of the Greeks uh, two centuries ago throwing off the Ottoman yoke, uh, the Italians throwing off the Habsburg yoke. It, it is a kind of classic uh, national awakening. Uh, and that was something Ukraine needed because prior to this, it was still a very divided uh, society. And indeed, one used to talk about the divisions between East and West Ukraine, uh, those have gone. Uh, and I think what's really striking to me is that amongst young Ukrainians, there is absolutely no doubt that the country's future lies in the West. They talk here uh, about uh, EU accession. That was something that, that was made clear uh, by numerous uh, government spokesmen. That's the plan. They fully intend to pursue that option. Uh, as rapidly as they can. And I think what's really critical here is that that's the Ukraine that young Ukrainians want. And remember, in a war, the morale of your young people is really the critical variable because you've got to persuade them to don uniforms and go and risk their lives. And one encounters all the time absolutely extraordinary stories. Uh, earlier today, I met uh, a young man, a lawyer, an accomplished lawyer, uh, who has just returned uh, from the front, having narrowly survived uh, hideous uh, wounds. He lost an eye, he was uh, wearing an eye patch, he suffered other injuries too. Uh, but the amazing thing about his story is that he was born in Kabul. Uh, he's actually an immigrant uh, to Ukraine. Uh, his brother is in the government uh, and he gave a most uh, moving uh, testament to the, the war as he sees it. And of course, the veterans, and there will be a significant number of returning veterans like him who've suffered uh, uh, severely uh, in the war, are going to expect a very different Ukraine uh, from right. the Ukraine of last year. So I, I do think there's a very transformative thing happening here. And it re represents, I think, the end really of the, the Soviet generation, the generation that remembered the Soviet Union calling the shots. The younger generation has absolutely no doubt uh, that its future lies with the West. But I think they're beginning to see uh, that it's not just gonna be a matter of copying and pasting what Poland did because of their situation, because of what they've just uh, been through, they need to be more like Israel uh, and accept that, as one minister said earlier today, uh, that their proficiency in modern warfare uh, has to be a feature, not a bug, and has to be something that they, they, they focus on and use as the basis for uh, technological leadership, as Israel has done so successfully as a startup nation in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, John. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh... You're also painting that uh, even after this ends, they and uh, Russia will be looking at each other over a testy border for a long time. I think unless there's a unless a, a, there is a, a regime change of some kind in Russia, which I really wouldn't bet on, uh, that's right. And I, I think one has to accept that a war like this uh, isn't likely uh, to result any time soon in a stable peace. It's more likely, I think, to be like the way the Korean War ended after a period of very violent and kinetic warfare, things got bogged down. And in the end, you got an armistice, uh, a kind of tie, a demilitarized zone, but never a peace agreement. And I could imagine something like that happening. Uh, if we're uh, brutally honest, uh, it's hard to see with their current capability that Ukraine has the firepower 
to drive the Russians right out, not only of uh, of Kherson and the Donbass, but the Crimea too. I mean, that's really hard to see, uh, particularly given the limits uh, of their military capability, the lack of air power that they have. Uh, the kind of offensive they'd had, have to wage to drive Russia right out would be incredibly costly in terms of, of lives. So I think if one's being uh, more Kissinger than Zelensky in thinking about this, at some point, uh, the fighting just won't be sustainable by the two sides at this, at this pitch. And then you can see some kind of demilitarized zone and a, and a, a, a permanent uh, tense uh, relationship of the sort that we've grown accustomed to uh, between North and South Korea. And then Russia becomes a, a cutoff from the West, a North Korea a satellite of China. So China picks up another North Korea and, and it slowly or rather quickly decays into that horrible state until I guess it changes regime. I mean, John, there are two really interesting economics points here that I think uh, uh, you'll have thoughts on. The, the interesting thing in the Russian case is that although the financial sanctions that, that were uh, the talk of the town at the beginning of the war did not bring the Russian economy uh, or the war machine uh, to its knees, the slow burn of export controls means that Russia's industry is in a parlous state uh, and the outlook is bleak. Uh, I just read an excellent uh, paper on this subject by uh, a group of economists looking carefully at trade data sh to show, for example, that Chinese exports to Russia have have collapsed, that, China, that Russian car manufacturing has collapsed. The outlook for the Russian economy is actually pretty grim. And, and guess who they're having to sell their gas to now, yeah, that's right, China. And guess yeah. what price the Chinese are paying? That's right, well below the price that they were getting from from uh, Europe. So I think Russia has put itself in a position of uh, dependence uh, on China without getting support in return, because the Chinese are not supporting the Russians in ways that would help the Russians win this war. And that's one of the most notable features of the past six and a half months, that the Chinese basically took uh, the warning they received from Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, they took it to heart, they have not done anything to incur secondary sanctions. And that's one of the reasons those trade numbers are down. The Chinese just aren't sending a whole lot that the Russians could put to use in this conflict. So I see Russia as on track to being a dependency of, of China, though, of course, it's a much larger economy than North Korea's. We have to remember that, you know, this is the big difference. Right. Yeah, Russia, by cutting off gas to Europe, uh, it may have thought, oh, we're going to make, make a hard winter for Europe. But it seems pretty clear that within two to three, that Europe's got the lesson. And two to three years from now, it will be importing nothing from Russia and will never import anything from Russia again. Now, gas and oil are a world market. So um, it, it leaks out fairly successfully, but nowhere near as easily as sending stuff to uh, sending stuff to Europe. And you're exactly right, the import controls. You know, there was one piece of Russian propaganda that might have actually been true when they said we cut off the Nord Stream pipeline, not, be, not out of uh, spite, but because thanks to the sanctions, we can't get pieces to keep the turbines running. <clears throat> well, that is, uh, that's actually quite possibly true and certainly a symbol of what's gonna happen throughout the, uh, throughout the Russian economy.
We have about five minutes left, and Neil, I would not be doing my job if I didn't ask you about the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Um, only Marduk you have known. Uh, two questions for you, Neil. First of all, your thoughts on her, what set her apart. Uh, but secondly, the future of British identity, what the, what the nation's identity will look like without her, because you're losing the living face of your currency. It's hard uh, for a Briton like me not to be moved. A 70-year reign is something that connects you to well, four generations of your own family. I can remember my right. grandfather urging me to watch the Queen's Christmas address every year. He would reverently listen to it, and I did too. And that became part of our the fabric of our, our family. The, the thing about uh, the British National Anthem is that it contains some stirring words, and I've sung them many times. Send her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the Queen. Well, he kind of did. Uh, he did send her victorious, happy and glorious, and she did lay, reign long over us. Uh, and, and those words have a resonance for me now that uh, they didn't have before. I think it's important to remember that, that perhaps her greatest contribution was to preside over the decline and fall of the British Empire. Right. And to do that, to manage that process, to to be, in a sense, its, its symbol in a way that, that minimized uh, the, the anguish and conflict that usually attends the end of an empire. And this, I think, when I ponder it, is her, her real historical significance. Other European empires did not uh, go down so gracefully, think of the violence that characterized the French exit from Algeria. And I could name many other examples. Right. And of course, Russia is perhaps the last uh, and uh, ugliest of these uh, European empires still clinging on to the delusion that somehow Ukraine uh, belongs uh, to it. So yeah, I think this was an extraordinary achievement uh, to reconcile uh, Britain to this complete transformation in its, its global role. How we cope in her absence, of course, is going to depend on, on things that, that she could not control. How her son, who's waited so long to be King Charles III, plays that part. And of course, how, and this is where it gets really tricky, how Britain navigates its winter of discontent. Because as Zelensky said, the winter of discontent isn't just Ukraine's, it's gonna be a European-wide winter of discontent. And in the short run, things don't look too pretty uh, for Britain and its new prime minister. It's not every day you get a new uh, a monarch and a new prime minister uh, all in the same uh, few days. That just happened. Uh, Liz Truss is now prime minister uh, as untested uh, a figure as ever took that office over. So we shall see how, how she and how the new king uh, fare I uh, can only hope that uh, he sends uh, him uh, victorious, happy and glorious. Uh, he certainly isn't going to reign over us as long as his mother did, that's for sure. And the future of the monarchy, Neil? That, I think, is assured. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is that uh, even in moments of, of doubt about the monarchy, and there have been many, uh, one forgets this now, but many over the course of the Queen's reign, think of the upheaval at the time of the, the death of uh, of Princess Diana, even at those low points, 
we can always look across the Atlantic and ask how uh, presidential systems compare. Uh, if you make the, the head of state an elected office, then everything becomes a part of your of your democracy. Uh, and, and that, of course, can, can create problems, as Americans know. The politicization of everything in American life, uh, from the Supreme Court uh, right down to uh, whether you get vaccinated or not, I don't think is a, is a healthy thing. And one of the things that makes Britain seem like a bit of a relief after exposure to American politics is that not everything is political and the monarchy is is a is a key to that. Monarchy is actually a remarkably stable system. I know no American listeners won't like to hear this, but the persistence of monarchy is one of the reasons the world isn't in a permanent state of political upheaval. Uh, so yeah, I think the monarchy will 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 be fine. No doubt there'll be ups and downs. There was a wonderful play that I saw about ten years ago about uh, how Charles's reign would go, uh, called Charles III, and uh, it was a, a pastiche Shakespeare. I hope somebody puts it on again soon, uh, which rather amusingly imagined a great constitutional crisis caused precisely because Charles couldn't resist getting involved in, in politics. I hope he resists that, uh, that temptation. Other Charles's uh, came to uh, unhappy ends. I don't want to go into further detail, but he should bear that in mind. John, you have one. John, you have one last question for Neil. Earlier, earlier namesakes are uh, are interesting. You know, I'm an American, and and we founded this country, and we don't believe in monarchy. Uh, in an era where it mattered who the monarch was, and and you know, good good kings and good queens can do well. The problem was, as anyone with a large family knows, there's a good chance the next one is an nincompoop, and then you have to wait a long time. And I think Britain's monarchy has evolved to where it doesn't matter if the next one is that much of a nincompoop. But we, uh, it's not a presidential system. In, in, in uh, Britain, you swear allegiance to the queen. We swear allegiance to the constitution. <laughs> and the, I think the constitution really forms that, that bedrock of, of conservation of what the actual, the state and the society is. And, and God save the constitution. Uh, it is <laughs> in uh, as much danger uh, as the monarchy. Uh, and I'll just note that, that Liz Truss, the supposedly libertarian uh, prime minister, 10 minutes into her uh, into her reign, the first thing she did was to pass uh, a hundred billion, no, how much was it? hundred billion pounds of energy subsidies to uh, silence the rising price of energy and its signal to conserve. Uh, I, I hope Charles lasts in his principles and his decorum and devotion to duty a little bit longer. <laughs> I, I feel sure he will, John. And remember, I, I share your uh, feelings of loyalty to the Constitution as an American citizen. One of the curiosities of being a, a dual citizen is that you can simultaneously uh, be a monarchist and a Republican in the sense of, of being loyal to a Republican Constitution. I'll never quite get over the sense that there's a contradiction there, uh, but I'd say living it is, at this point, going not too bad. And it, it certainly beats... Uh, beats the predicament uh, of, of Ukraine fighting uh, a war of, of independence uh, against uh, a, a far nastier empire than Americans had to fight against uh, back in, in the 1770s. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I think we're going to wrap it at that point. Neil, it's Saturday night in Kiev. I'm not sure what passes for nightlife in Kiev right now, but uh, we'll be looking for a report on that as well. And by all means, my friends, safe travels. We look forward to having you back on the Stanford campus in the near future. Great news that nightlife is pretty much back because the curfew got moved to 11 o'clock, 
recently. And like like many a capital during wartime, uh, Kiev has a an air of of normality, uh, which uh, shades into into a certain uh, frivolity. Those people who are back from the front line are obviously happy to be back here. Uh, but it's a it's a curious atmosphere and one that I haven't experienced for a, a very long time. Uh, I'm just glad to have been here at a time when the news from the front line was was so much better. And uh, it's great to be able to talk about that to to the Goodfellas audience. Too bad nope. HR wasn't here to hear the good news. I can't help feeling that this would have this would have made his day. I think we'll be talking about it again when HR is back on the show. So Neil, be careful out there. And again, we look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Take Take care. Thanks. And that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. If you're curious about when we'll be back, very simple. Subscribe to our show and rate us while you're at it. We like getting those stars. On behalf of my colleagues, John Cochran and the traveling international man of history, Neil Ferguson, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and again, thanks for watching our show and we will see you soon. Take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.